Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. It's about Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Thanks, Johanna. Father God, please open your word to us, please. Explain it to us so that it's clear, please. Impress it on our hearts so that our hearts change so that we want to do it. Empower us so that we can carry through the things that we say we want to do. We want to glorify your name. Grateful that you're here with us. Please move amongst us in this moment. May we have a sense, like Moses, that we've stood on holy ground, that we've met with the Lord who is, I am who I am. We don't own you. Even though we know your name, we, we don't own you. You own us because you chose to, because you chose us because you rescued us in Christ. We thank you that today we're your handpicked people. 
and we want to be we want to honor your name please help us in jesus name amen so we've been having a look at christian christian ethics in other words how should christians behave and we've discovered that new testament ethics are old testament ethics turned inside out and so we have to write them with a, a different preface so if you want to have um, exodus 20 open in front of you then that would help us on page 77 so god spoke all these words back in exodus 20 and the first word that he speaks is not a commandment it's a little preface i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt out of the land of slavery and then he said you'll have no other gods before me and then he said you shall not make yourself an image and today he says in verse seven, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. But because the New Testament ethic turns the Old Testament one inside out. So the preface in the Old Testament is I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Whereas the preface, the New Testament ethics is this. Now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefits you reap lead to holiness and the result is eternal life. So there was an Old Testament rescue. It was, it was a rescue um, out, out of Egypt um, by plagues, by God's power through the water. Uh, for you and I, it's a, it's a rescue um, out of being addicted to sin by the freedom that Jesus brings when he dies on a cross for us. So there is a clear difference between the Old Testament mechanism and the New Testament mechanism. The, the old Ten Commandments, they work from the outside in. And they tell us to do and they tell us to do not. The Ten Commandments only restrain the worst of sin. Polytheism, idolatry, blasphemy, murder, adultery, theft, slander, envy. But in the New Testament, if you're a person who's trusted what Jesus has done on the cross, you've looked at what he's done, and he said, yes, he did that for me. And he did that to pay for my sins. Then you have received God's Holy Spirit. And he is working as soon as you receive him to change you from the inside out. And he changes the heart. He changes you at the heart level. Works at the level of your desires to change you so you want to be holy. And then he gives you the power to make that a practical reality day by day. So the heart of New Testament ethics is this. Since we live by the Spirit, since we're alive to God by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So why are we doing the Ten Commandments then? Because they still reveal the character of the Lord. And as such as one writer says, they are an invitation into reality. And I like that phrase. They help us see the universe, the world as it really is, and as how it really works. Number one. Whereas you shall have no other gods before me. Why is, that, why is that an invitation into reality? Because there are no other gods. There is only one God, only one true God. And it's the God of Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Number two is kind of, you shall not make for yourself an image. How is that an invitation into reality? Our God is spirit. Our God is invisible. Although he's all-knowing, he's all-present, He's all powerful, yet he is spirit and he is invisible. And if you make an image of him, then you inevitably detract from him and you make him smaller. 
So the Ten Commandments are an invitation into reality if we get a grip on them, but they're a useful set of pegs for us to, to hang our ethic on, though the New Testament ethic is much deeper because God expects more of us because we have his Holy Spirit within us. But if we rightly understand them, then we can see the, the Ten Commandments as the broad agenda that the Holy Spirit is wanting to work on in you. Does that make sense? Ten Commandments, they're, they're the Holy Spirit's bullet points for what he wants to work in your life. As he works on the inside to increasingly free us from our addiction to self and turns our hearts and our minds to loving the Lord uh, with all our heart and loving our neighbours as ourselves. So today, number three, don't use the Lord's name in a way that devalues it shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. To get a grip on this, we need to, to backtrack. We need to ask the question, what is God's name? And so that's why we uh, backtracked to Exodus 3 from Exodus 20. Well, God's name is the Lord, according to our Bibles. There it is, if you've got it in page 78, Shall not misuse the name of the Lord. We have Lord in this kind of small uh, capitals, which is really unfortunate. In fact, his name is YWHW. Have I got that? YHWH. Get it right. Um, which we don't know how to say, which is Yahweh or in older versions, Jehovah. But the Jews didn't want to say it because of this commandment, ironically. And so uh, uh, there was a period in time where his name was said once a year. Um, on the Day of Atonement. And so we've lost that proper pronunciation. And we've lost something in our relating to God, which somehow we have to mentally put back in. Because as we saw in, in Exodus 3, this name, Yahweh, Yahweh, let's, let's go with Yahweh. It relates to his self-existence. He says, I am who I am. And at one level, I think that means in, in, the, in those times, if you knew the name of a God, then you sort of had control over him and you could uh, appeal to them and um, do the right stuff. And like a sort of slot machine, you had their name and out popped the blessings. And so God is saying at one level, that's not the kind of God I am. I'm not going to relate to you like a, a slot machine. I am who I am. I'm not going to allow you to go pull, pull the handle and expect me to pour out blessings from the bottom. He is a personal God. He is so much more than that. He's a God who wants a, a, a relationship, but it relates also to his self-existence. God says, I am who I am. That ought to give you at least a little trickle of kind of fear or awe or confusion um, down the back of your spine. As a kid, I used, to, I used to fret with this question um, before as a Christian. If God created the universe, who created God? There must be somebody who created, must be something that created God. And then, or who created that thing that created God? And there must be something that created back. And, and then you would just go back and back and back. Where does it stop? Where does it come from? And I used to, it did. It, uh, used to, there was an age where it used to frighten me, 11, 12, 13. Because to say that there was a God who created everything seems to just be to push the question of creation one further back. But it doesn't. 
To think like that is to entirely misunderstand God. God doesn't need a creator. That's what he's saying when he says, I am who I am. I don't need a creator. I don't have a creator. I am who I am. I am self-existence. I do not have a beginning. It's quite a scary thought, isn't it? God is a being. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's a completely different class of being from you and me and anything else on this earth. We all have a beginning and an end. And God is completely different. That's why, even on a scientific level, when you want to ask the question, how do we get out? Why is there something rather than nothing? Philosophical level. It comes from there being a self-existent God. And our God, the Lord, says, yeah, that is me. He's the God who's self-existent. So God's name is Yahweh. It reveals him as self-existent. It reveals him also as personal. He says, this is the name you can use. This is the name that you can call me the I am. You can call me Lord, which kind of summarizes that I am statement. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says. And he's the God who, as a personal God, draws into personal relationships with people. That's an amazing thing. And in this context, he's always making covenants, making promises, so that his people know how to relate to him and how to be blessed. So all that is in God's name. He encapsulates his his character as self-existent, but his character uh, as, as personal, his character as a God who wants to relate to people um, and, and draw into a, a covenant, a pact um, with them. And all that goes out of focus when we call him God. And equally, it's not desperately in focus when you call him Lord. Unless you can remember that that Lord is his self-existent um, covenant name by which he is prepared to uh, draw into a relationship with sinners. So I don't know whether those you read the Bible studies for now for a while now I've just been typing out Lord in capital letters um, at least some of the time where, when I'm writing because I need to use the Lord's name, not his title. Even Lord is a kind of pseudo title, which is unfortunate. But I think we just have to run with it and you have to remember then what the content of that name is. So how is God's name used? I, I, there's an interesting little study for you to do on your own. I mean, it's simply to go to Bible Gateway or, or a thesaurus, look up name and Lord, let's say together, and you get a whole load of references um, in the Old Testament of how the name of the Lord is, is used. And the bottom line is this, that God's name is who he is. So God's name is a shorthand for, for him and his character. And that shouldn't surprise you because actually that's the same for you and me. If I say Colin, okay, then you know who I mean and you know who he is and, and you know something about his character. So if I say, if I say Bill, you know, I've invited Bill round for tea. I can say this. Oh, he's on Zoom, isn't he? Hi, Bill. Okay, oops. Okay, he, I was going to say he's not here, but he is here on Zoom. Just say hello to the Zoomers. Um, 
If I say I've invited Bill around for tea, then you know what I mean, and I know what I mean. I mean that person, Bill, and all that he is, jovial, easygoing, and slightly sweaty because he's come on his bike. <laughs> so if Bill says, come to Heathrow on Tuesday, mention my name and they'll let you come airside, that seems plausible because he works for BA. Seems consistent with his character and his authority. If, if he says to me, go to the Model Railway Society annual dinner, mention my name and, and they'll let you in, then I'll be much more doubtful, unless there's something about Bill I don't know. So it's true of our names that they sum us up and our, and our character. Why should it be any different when we come uh, to the name of the Lord? And so you find some really interesting uses in the Old Testament, perhaps the most... The, the most startling one that I found is that again and again uh, in the Old Testament, th there's a conversation or there are commands to Israel um, to find and build a place for God's name. It's Deuteronomy 12. This is um, Deuteronomy being second law. This is where the, the, they go through the law again before they enter into the promised land. The, the law is this, you, or the command is this, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. That's the Canaanites' way. But you are to seek the place that the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for your dwelling, for his dwelling, rather. That place you go, and that's where you give your burnt offerings and sacrifices. And there in the presence of the Lord, you and your family shall eat and rejoice because the Lord has blessed you. So isn't that interesting? So God, the Lord, who is eternal, omnipresent, present everywhere, who is spirit, who is invisible, chooses a place um, to reveal himself and, and to dwell amongst his people, his Old Testament people at Israel. So his name is, is, is all that he is. And all that he is dwells amongst his people with all his goodness and all his presence to bless them and to look after them. Perhaps more familiarly, God's name is, is used repeatedly in, in praise. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, Moses says. This is at the end of Deuteronomy. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His ways are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So Moses says, I praise his name, and then he lists some of the aspects of God's character, some of the traits of God who bears this name. And that's what we're saying when I, I, lift, his, I lift his name um, on, on high. In other words, I am praising God, and, and, and I am saying that all these things that he is, that is encapsulated in these names, I love them and I want to exalt them. I want to praise them and praise him who has them. Psalm 7, I'll give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Oh, his name is, in, in this occasion, a kind of encapsulation of all his perfections, all his goodness. So watch out for it now um, and think about it. Whenever we're singing, you'll see it comes up again and again. And it'll come up again and again today because I've picked them specially. But it'll, as we go along, you'll find that we 
praise the name of the Lord. We praise God for all his perfections. His name, though, is also his character expressed in his covenant protection for his people. Psalm 20, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May the Isn't that funny? May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. They own that name. And under that name and by that name, God has entered into a relationship with you. It's a bit like he signed the piece of paper that I will protect you. That's how his name protects them. He's made a promise. He's a covenant God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, the same song. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. As we sometimes sing, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower, Proverbs 18. The righteous run into it and safe are safe. Aren't they funny references? The name of the Lord is a strong tower and we run into it. Kind of run into God's name. But what we mean is we, we go to God and ask him, find protection and, and, and preservation in his consistent, always loving character. His name is, is his character that's called, called upon him blessings. So when they, when they David first uh, brings everything, no, this is when the ark comes back to Jerusalem. Um, David makes some offerings and he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He was just asking them that God, who is this name, has this character to love and to bless, will, will work, will do good things for those people. His name is invoked in prophecy sometimes inappropriately so under jeremiah the lord said the prophets are prophesying lies in my name they're saying god is the lord has spoken to me and they haven't so it's just interesting to see how god's name is is used uh, there's a little old testament survey but how then is god's name misused the command is this See, in English, it says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Um, the original says something like this. You shall not lift up the name of your God to vanity. By vanity, we mean worthlessness, futility, inconsequentiality, and falsehood. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God to, to worthlessness. So this word in the Old Testament, so Job says, I've been, a, I've been allotted months of futility. Poor old Job. Same word, vanity, futility, meaningless days. David says in Psalm 60, give us aid against the enemy for human help is worthless. Psalm 27, you know this, unless the Lord builds a house, it's builders labor in vain. Vain. In vanity, worthless, doesn't happen. Or Jonah 2, those who cling to worthless idols, worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Worthlessness, valuelessness, falseness. Our God is, is never worthless. How could you equate his name with something worthless? Worthless. 
Our God is never valueless. How could you equate his name as, as being uh, not having value? Our God is never false. So how could you lift up his name in, in, in falsehood? How do we do that? Next slide. Well, you read, those who've got the book, the Jen Wilkin book, they've all gone back to Canaan. So if you want one, you have to go to Canaan now. Um, it's a great little book. She suggests four ways. I'm going to use three of them. The way that we lift up God's name to, to worthlessness. And the first is when we use the Lord's name without reverence. The Lord is, is more precious than, than anything else. This name that encapsulates his, his character, you cannot use it lightly. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be a curse word. You can't say, oh, God, or oh, Lord, or Jesus Christ as, a, as an expletive, because then you use it's his name. And you're saying it as something false. So actually it's something evil. So the Jews of old were right and yet wrong. We, they're wrong that we shouldn't speak the name of the Lord of God at all. But they were right that it should be spoken with, with, with reverence in our conversations. And in the little 10 words to live by book, she, said, she notes that in the New Testament, in the epistles, they only talk about Jesus 28 times. And there's another 480 odd times when the New Testament, Paul particularly refers to him as the Lord Jesus or as Christ Jesus. We can get a bit over familiar. We misuse his name when we, when we use it without thinking or without reverence. We misuse his name then if there's no personal worship in your life. Do you just worship in church on Sundays or do you worship um, in your day-to-day -day life? If there's not, then in some ways you're misusing the name of the Lord because you're, you're just you're using it in worship on Sunday and there's no worship in the rest of your life. Make time. Make time somewhere in a week to, to worship this God whose name is so valuable to you, who you say is so valuable to you mustn't treat him as less than less than personal holy spirit is not an it he's a he don't treat him as less than personal god is not a slot machine remember when you come to him in prayer he is incredibly patient and the the psalms show us the kind of outrageous words that that um, god's people have used to kind of rush into his presence and um, um they kind of pour out their woes and, that, and that's okay. But consider the circumstances in which you pray, make time. Had one speaker who talked about having his quiet time on the loo and I hesitate to mention it again, but if our God is personal being, uh, you, you don't treat any other person in your life except perhaps your partner that way. I'm not sure that's a pro. Think about God is this immense holy being 
who's entered into a covenant relationship with you and, and, and treat him with honour. Secondly, is, is second way then is it, we misuse his name. If we claim the Lord's authority when he hasn't given it. So be really careful when you say the Lord said, the Lord revealed to me. Not saying the Lord doesn't speak to you. He does. Primarily through the scriptures, but also sometimes through, you know, mental impressions, sometimes even in dreams. But be careful. I tend to say, I think the Lord might be saying, just couch it in reverential terms. And when you say it, don't say it in a way that puffs you up, but say it in a way that brings glory to the Lord. But primarily, I think we misuse the Lord's name then when you realize that it, it is all of his holy character encapsulated. The main way we, we misuse it is when our, our lives don't match our words. When our lives are inconsistent. It's about then, it's about integrity. It's about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. It's about putting into action the things you say you believe. Because if we are false, in other words, if we say one thing and do another, then we imply, as we own the name of the Lord, that the Lord is false. And he is not. He's faithful in all that he says and all that he does. And we have to think of Jesus. One of the most amazing things about Jesus is at the end of his life, nobody, nobody could remember a false word. Nobody could remember. Nobody could pin. His enemies couldn't pin blame on, on him for a false word. Those who had been with him uh, remembered him. Uh, as being sinless they, they couldn't remember Jesus saying one thing and doing another because he never did because he is God in, in, incarnate and that would be an amazing thing to aspire to and maybe that's something you want to aspire to this week James says we all stumble in many ways anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect able to keep the whole body in check. If you can control your words, you have nine-tenths of the way there. So let's try and sum it up. I want to read you a little bit of Galatians. And then we'll pray in. Sorry. It's for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Note, what all that we say this morning, we're not sending you back to being under the law. Just using the law so the Holy Spirit can prompt you from the inside to do things differently. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You're free from trying to get right with God by the law. The law of Moses cannot justify you, cannot make you right before, we, right before God. Hallelujah, what a great, what good news. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is filled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So I say, Paul says, live by the Spirit. 
And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, Paul says, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's been killed off. Since we live by the Spirit, we're alive to God by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. How do you know that you're a Christian here this morning? You know you're a Christian. One, one of the ways is that your conscience troubles you. Conscience troubles you from time to time. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Conscience works when there's a standard and there's a behavior, conscience weighs the two up, sees how they go. Holy Spirit has written the law in your heart. He's written you a new standard. And he energizes your conscience to see your behavior in the light of it. And he pokes you, prompts you to new things. What's he doing today? What's he saying to you? Let's pray. Just want you to take a moment and if, the, if you just be precise or ask the Lord to be precise. What are you saying to me today? Father God, we thank you that the word of, of God in the, in the hands of the Holy Spirit is like a double-edged sword. It is sharp. It is precise like a surgeon's scalpel. It gets down to the heart of the matter. Please, Lord, don't let us go out of here feeling vaguely guilty or vaguely uplifted, but we ask, Father God, that you would be precise. We would ask that your spirit would work on our hearts in precise areas. Give us the grace to be more like Jesus. More like Jesus in that he says one thing and he does the same thing. Please make us more like him. Amen. I'm going to sing some songs to try and fix these thoughts in our mind, to respond to them. And the first is, is great.